welcome Dr. Allen back to the pulpit. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this apostle. We thank you for this good news, this delightful report of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we attend to it, you might make us attentive, teachable, We pray that as we listen to it, you might make us humble and repentant. We pray that as we turn to it, you might mold our very hearts and wills, that we might turn to you in faith and love. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. As we listen to this passage, I'm reminded of the first rule, do no harm. And sometimes when you take something in or you read a passage, when you observe something on TV or you hear an account from another, it's quite possible to do so in a way that leads to harm. Consider a very standard type of commercial you will no doubt have observed on TV. It takes a number of forms, but they're all relatively the same. It begins with a car ride, or perhaps a jump out of an airplane, a dirt bike on a path, a jump, a speeding bullet. Always the expressions are the same. Smiles aglow, screaming mouths agape, arms extended in delight and joy, Whatever they may be doing, wherever they may be going, however they may be uh, living daringly, they are happy, and so you and I ought to be as well. But that's not where the commercial ends, is it? It always goes a step forward. Just beneath the logo of whatever product somehow promises this is that other word, that phrase that is crucial to catch, but sometimes somewhat imperceptible because they tend to do it smaller. Do not try this at home. These are trained professionals. And of course, there's all manner of fine print even smaller beneath that. The legalese meant to guard us against unhelpful imitation. And I think we need that kind of reminder as we come to this passage. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, is letting loose. It's a strange letter. 
You read Paul's letters, and he has a very standard sort of practice or MO. He always begins with a word of greeting and a word of thanks, somehow giving thanks to God for something that he sees amidst the church there, something that he revels in, something that delights him. And he will regularly call them to account for problems. He will regularly get in their face and not refrain from actually addressing sin and strife and struggle, but he has a proper flow to it. He knows how to sort of lay the groundwork for his pastoral proclamations, but not here. In Galatians, he launches right in with warning and exhortation. In Galatians, he launches right in with a dire condemnation of anyone who would turn away from the gospel. And here in verses 11 to 17 of chapter 1, we're amidst this feisty and fast beginning, and he offers something that I think can be perhaps harmful if taken improperly. If we don't catch its point, it can actually lead us astray. Paul says a number of things here that sound very common, very typical for the Christian. He says, for instance, that in verse 15, he was set apart before he was born. He says also that he was called by God's grace. He says in the next verse, verse 16, that God revealed his son to me. And we can put stories to these phrases. If we read, for instance, in Acts chapter 9, we learn of Saul's upbringing in Judaism, which he refers to here in verses 12 and 13. And we see there that that took the form of him being deeply schooled and trained in the scriptures of old. And we see that when he was converted, when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, he then was brought into Damascus and he was ministered to by Ananias and by the other disciples. So we read in Acts 9 verses 17 to 19. So much that's very common that we confess that God sets us apart, that God calls us by his grace, that God reveals his son to us that we are trained in the Scriptures and that we are strengthened by the testimony of others. And yet it's worth noting that certain things Paul's going to say here are not typical and they are not meant to be paradigmatic. That Paul is not suggesting that certain things he says here ought to be prompts for you to go and to practice. Because Paul says some very strange things. In verse 11, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. In verse 16, I did not immediately consult anyone. In verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, that is to the the place of teaching authority, the church. Paul here is suggesting that the word he has, this good word, is itself from God, not from any intermediary, not from any human lips, not from any Christian testimony. Now, hopefully you can see how this could be a harmful word if taken out of context. And there are those who have seen this and suggested that we ought to follow suit, that we ought not to go to church, we ought not to turn to the Scriptures, we ought to simply wait at home for God to address us from above. That it would be far too common and typical 
for God to speak through the same book that he addresses men and women around the globe and through the centuries. He ought to have a personalized word for me. And so we ought to wait at home for Jesus to call, as it were. That's to hear Paul's description here as a paradigm, as a pattern that every Christian in every way is meant to conform to. But if we do that, we miss precisely the point of why Paul is saying this rather strange thing, that he, he didn't receive this from any human, that he wasn't instructed in that way. He is highlighting his authority. He is highlighting his distinctiveness. He is highlighting the unique gift that is his, not as a Christian, but as an apostle. Paul was charged, as we know, reading in 2 Corinthians, by others as being a fake and a phony, not a real apostle, because he wasn't one of the original band of disciples cruising around Galilee with Jesus for several years. He seemed to be a latecomer, perhaps a second generation, someone who threw his lot in after the church got going, it might be said. Paul here is giving a defense of his authority. Paul here is explaining that his gospel and his apostleship is not inferior, but is from God himself, because it's of God's revelation of Jesus Christ, as he says here. What we see in this passage, then, is not some sort of pattern for you and I to wait for the silent whisper of God in the still of the night, but rather it's an argument for you and I attending to the apostolic words of Holy Scripture, given then and for all time. Far from this somehow laying down a paradigm where you and I, like Paul, would wait for Jesus to confront us on the road, something I don't hope happens on I-95 this afternoon, that some driver is accosted in front of me and, and an accident no doubt ensues, but rather that we would be so strengthened with confidence and assurance that Paul testifies a word, a good word from God, not a word from mere mortals, not the simple wisdom of the saints, but a word from heaven itself. And that knowing that, we would again and again, in seasons of happiness and of harm, in times good and bad, return here. And so this morning, as we look at Galatians 1, and as we seek to hear these words in the way they're meant to be heard, we want to talk about the idea of biblical authority. It's an appropriate word. You're about to launch into a Sunday school series, I learned this morning, on the Reformation. And you're doing that because it's the 500th anniversary of what happened in the year 1517, where a German monk and professor, Martin Luther, stood up and protested what he believed were unbiblical practices and beliefs in the church of the time. And many of us look back to that as an occasion where Christ, through a cranky German man, was able to return his church to an attentive ear and to a humble heart and to a greater awareness of God's grace for us, that marvelous grace that we've sung about, that amazing grace that we will herald before we leave here. And I think there's something we can see about what Luther found so captivating, being beholden to God's word, that is rooted in Paul's words right here in Galatians 1. 
I think we can see something theological about what it means for the gospel, the scriptures of the prophets and the apostles, to be from God. And I think there's something we ought to explore about functionally, what that means for you and I in our day-to-day practice. And I hope before we're done that you will also be instilled with a sense of hope and confidence that that's something we can trust in, that that's a gift of God that we can rely upon in seasons where it may not at first glance seem the most promising. So let's consider first, theologically, what is said here about the authority, the unique authority and power of God's holy word, of the gospel, the good word that is from God. Consider verse 11, where we began. Paul says that the gospel, the good news, the report that is of good things, that is beneficial, that is glorious and true and beautiful, that that gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel very similar in tone to where he begins the entire epistle in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, where he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. There he identified his ministry as being from and through God, not mere humans. Now he attests his testimony, his witness, his word as similarly being from and through God, not humans, not mere mortals. We see here what we see, for instance, in Hebrews 4, that the Word of God is living and active. When we refer to the Word of God as as being a Word that is breathed out by God, that is inspired of God, that bears God's power and authority, we don't deny that Paul is writing. We don't deny that a prophet is speaking. We don't deny that there is a process of human thought and communication and scripturation. What we do is we source it more deeply. We realize that there is a deeper fountain. There is a more fundamental source that God is at work providentially and wisely leading that prophet or that apostle, in this case, Paul, to write down the gospel, to leave for us the good news of Jesus, to declare for all generations the good word that is itself from God. Now the cynic in us, and it's there, it's always there, It's seasonal, like a snowbird, perhaps. It comes and it goes, but the cynic is there. We might say, is is this really true? Or perhaps, is this too good to be true, that we would have words from God? We live in a world of many words. You can turn on the news, or you can go to the local diner, but you will get chatter aplenty. And we know, of course, that in both of those and perhaps other circumstances, much of it is mere spin. It's folks trying to convince you of what what serves them well. Trying to work you over so that you work for them, vote for them, purchase things for them. In what way can we really trust that these are reliable words that would lead to our flourishing, to our blessedness, to actual 
peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Isn't that too good to be true? We can't consider philosophically all the objections and all the arguments for that this morning. But this text does remind us of perhaps what's the most compelling and captivating thing to keep in mind. Consider what is said just after verse 11. The one who is speaking tells his story and speaks his testimony, and it's remarkable. It's a testimony of someone who is educated and informed. It's someone who is on the up and up within Judaism. It's someone who is vehemently and violently opposed to the way of Jesus. And this Saul, this persecutor of the church, this proclaimer of the cynical message regarding Jesus and his gospel, This one who would be the debate opponent of the apostles has himself now been converted and changed. And while there are other arguments we might make about the truthfulness of Scripture, about the divine source of the gospel itself, and while those are valid and good and important, it's crucial to catch that the most compelling testimony is always the personal conversion. And it doesn't get any better than Saul. Saul, who would go and be present at the the killing of the first martyr, as we read the account in Acts 6 and 7, where he's there and he's holding the clothes of that crowd that is stoning Stephen. Stephen, who is preaching the good news of Jesus, beginning in Genesis and racing through all the Old Testament. Stephen, who then stands and dies like a Christian. And Paul wasn't there as an apostle, wasn't there as a Christian, wasn't there as an encourager. Saul was there with the crowd, goading them on. And Saul was there in Acts 9, on his way, with papers granting him power to imprison and to kill Christians. And here in Galatians 1, he speaks as a man who has been changed. He speaks as a human who's been transformed. Not a fool, not uneducated, not unalert, not off the beaten path. The person who knew the most, the person with the most power and much to gain, has now been humbled and transformed and captivated and is fully alert to the beauty of Jesus. And so it's worth reminding the cynic in each of us that the good word from God is the good word that can change the doubt, the fear, the hesitation, and even the cynicism in each of us. For it did so in Paul. What does this mean functionally? If we confirm, if we confess... If we say with with Paul that the gospel of Jesus is not just human ingenuity, it's not just the religious traditions of mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa, if it's not just the way of the wise and the powerful, but if it really is from God, if it's inspired of God, if it's from heaven itself, how does that change how we live? I think there's two things we do well to keep in mind. With Luther and the Reformers, with Paul and the other apostles before them. 
And that is that the living and active Word of God that is from God and for His people is to be our norm and our limit. That was Luther's concern, that the preaching and proclamation of the church in all that it does would be normed by the Word of God and would be limited by the Word of God. What does that mean? Let's consider what it means for the the preaching and proclamation of the church to be normed by the Word of God. If we're honest, there are parts that befuddle and baffle and frustrate and confuse and perhaps anger and tick off each of us. It's not how we might have written it. It's not what we'd like to be challenged by. It's uncomfortable. It's perhaps remarkably offensive at first glance. And so each and every person, if they keep about the task of Bible reading and they're honest with themselves, will be challenged and tempted at times to blink for imperceptibly long periods of time or to skip over a section that seems to just be written a little too directly about what's happening in your heart. You know the feeling. It's as though that word, that message, that verse, written hundreds, thousands of years ago, was like it was written about the conversation you had in the car on the way to church this morning. And we are so tempted to turn. We are so tempted to desire something which would be palatable and affirming and which wouldn't get our goad, which wouldn't call us to change, which wouldn't put us in our place. And we ought to be honest that there are many churches that thus won't ruffle feathers. There are many pulpits that won't profess the whole counsel of God. They will smooth out the rough edges. They will jump over the challenging parts. But for the Word of God to be our norm, we have to be committed like Paul was as he wrote in speaking to the church in Ephesus as it's reported in Acts 20 that he could sleep well at night. His conscience was clear knowing he had proclaimed the whole counsel of God. Whereas he could write to young Timothy that all of Scripture is God-breathed and thus all of it is there to equip the man or woman of God that we might be ready for every good work. And so we don't pick and choose and we don't jump and skip, but we attend to the totality of the Word and we honestly acknowledge that Jesus cares about the totality of our lives. It's frustrating at times. It's challenging at times. It's tempting at times to want to say, thus far and no further, Jesus. I gave you Sunday. What more do you want? I gave you this percentage of my money. How much are you really going to ask for me? I I try and relate to these people in ways that honor you. Are you really going to get in my face about how I do my business? About how I spend my money? About how I devote my time? About how I think about my retirement? And yet, attending to the totality of the Word means acknowledging in faith that that God's going to call out unfaithfulness in every area of life. And that God's going to extend His Lordship into every sphere of ourselves. And that we ought to hear gratefully His whole Word as our norm and our guide, our rule and our canon. 
But it also means that the word is our limit. This was Luther's great concern in many ways in his day as preachers would commend the word and get some momentum and then commend their own wisdom and expect some obedience. And we may think, particularly those of us who aren't Roman Catholics but are some version of Protestant, we may think that we've surely got this down because we don't affirm the authority of a bishop in Rome, perhaps. But it's worth noting that this is alive and well. It's worth noting that there are a lot of churches that affirm the final authority of God's holy word that functionally go on and affirm the authority of the pastor as the guru. And we can see this in so many ways, that we go beyond what the Word says, demanding obedience to some pastor's thoughts on who you should vote for, on how you should raise your kids, on what diet is biblical, on what method of dating is Christianly appropriate. We go beyond what is written in Scripture. We go beyond what is rightly drawn out of it to offer the perhaps good, perhaps bad, but in all cases, unscriptural thoughts of this or that pastor. We fail to be limited by what God and His good wisdom, God and His mercy has told us through His servants, the prophets and the apostles. I was struck by this most powerfully when my wife and I were about to be parents for the first time a number of years ago. And of course, when you're about to be a parent, you realize life is suddenly getting serious. And it's one of those moments where you realize you don't know what you're doing. And so you go out and you search for information. And amazingly, I'm here to tell you, there are books in Barnes & Noble about parenting. You might not have noticed those two sections, but they're there. And there are a few folks seeking to offer their wisdom about how you might parent well. Not only that, but there are those who would suggest that there is Christian wisdom to be found in parenting. And so my wife and I found a number of books. And we would read and discuss, and, and there was lots of good wisdom. How to, how to get your child trained to sleep through the night how to uh, go about the the potty training process, how to instill discipline in a wise and gracious way, a helpful way. Uh, We found all sorts of wisdom. When we were studying, the, the single most influential book on parenting, a good book, was called Raising Kids God's Way. Lots of interesting wisdom there. Some of you probably will have read or passed it along to others. And we read the book, and we discussed it, and there were a number of things that that we felt were helpful there, and we were glad to have learned them. But I was struck by something. Uh, As somebody who's an author and thinks about titles and what one claims for various things, and I remember upon finishing the book, realizing that about 90% of the book had no source in Holy Scripture. That's not to say it was bad. It's not to say it was wrong. I'm no expert, but it struck me there was a lot of wisdom at points, and there were other occasions where maybe there'd be other opinions that would be worth hearing. But in any event, most of it had rather little to do with the Bible. And yet there was the title, Raising Kids God's Way. As an author, I could appreciate that. That sells really well. It's better than Raising Kids Steve and Susie's Way. 
It's, it's better than some thoughts from a Christian family who perhaps know more than you, but aren't themselves God. And if we're honest, if, if you go to a Christian bookstore, and if you happen to find books in the bookstore, which is itself a task, you'll notice there are tons of examples like this. Biblical diets, biblical approaches to budgeting, biblical approaches to government and politics, biblical approaches to marriage dynamics and to parenting. And there's lots of wisdom in it, but there's always a great danger that we will move from what the Bible actually teaches to what we as individuals think and discern and ponder and wonder, and we will cease to note the difference. And there's a great danger, especially for the pulpit, that the preacher and the church listening to them will think that so-and-so's thoughts about politicians or about marriages, about money, or about parenting is on par with the apostles' thoughts about God and everything as it relates to God. Luther reminded us that just as we are to attend to the whole counsel of God, because it's from God and it's life-giving, so we're to be limited in our preaching and our proclamation and attend to that whole counsel of God and to go no further. This is one of the, the most challenging things to think through with students in the seminary who are tempted to go all guru as they find their way into a pulpit because people want wisdom, people want to process, they want a word, they want clarity, they want closure, and it's so tempting for a pastor to believe that just as they've studied Galatians and have a word from God there, they've also watched the news and clearly have some wisdom to offer there. But the pastor isn't a cultural commentator. The pastor isn't necessarily the the wisest person in the room on every given issue. And even on the issues that matter, even expounding God's word, the pastor and the pulpit aren't significant because of the wisdom of the pastor first, but because of the calling of God and because of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. And so functionally, we are called to the difficult task of faith, of listening to all that God says and according it all truthfulness, submitting to its authority in every sphere of our lives, and to refusing to lay burdens on one another, to refuse to play the the dictatorial tyrant from the pulpit, to refuse to suggest that the individual discernments of Christians that go beyond Holy Scripture are on par with Scripture. This is why the Reformers spoke not only of the ultimate authority of Scripture, but also with it, the idea of the priesthood of all believers. That we believe that through the preaching of the Word, through the partaking of the sacraments, that men and women, each and every one of you who are united to Christ, are formed and shaped and granted biblical wisdom that you are called to discern. You're not called to submit every thought and decision to a pastor or to your elders. You're called to be trained by the Word of God. You're called to have biblical wisdom instilled in you. You're called to encourage and exhort one another with God's truth. And then you're called to the task of mature discernment of what Romans 12.2 describes as 
being able to discern, having your mind renewed by the Word of God, being able to discern what's true and good and perfect. You're called to that priestly judgment and wisdom. You're called to that priestly witness before the watching world. You're called to that responsibility as laypersons. And precisely for that, you're equipped with the Word of God. And you're to attend to its fullness. And you're to refuse to go beyond it. Now, if Paul here describes that his word, a good word about Jesus, is from God and through God, and if it's inspired of God and has the authority of God, and if it's to norm and to limit what we profess and witness to as Christians, then I think we're in a situation a lot like the Israelites in Exodus 16. We sometimes refer to the Word as bread or manna from heaven. And it's fitting. Perhaps you remember that story. The Israelites had been brought out from Egypt, but they weren't yet to Canaan. They were in what we call the wilderness, and they were wandering. It was a time where, if we're honest, they were frankly rather vulnerable. They weren't fortified. They weren't hemmed in. They were on the move, out in the open, They didn't have a military. They'd been slaves for centuries. They didn't have storehouses. They hadn't had property for as long as they could remember. And yet there they were. God was calling them out as a people. And God was giving them a vision of what life with Him as their Lord would look like. And one of the remarkable provisions of God, a promise, was that God would provide food. They're in the wilderness. They can't plant They're on on the go constantly. They can't somehow fertilize fields. And so God promises what each of us would want in that moment. Baked goods from heaven. And there it was every morning. Manna. A pastry from on high. Dunkin' Donuts brought right to you. And they were called and commanded to go out and to take, to feast on it. It was to be their norm that this is how they were to be nourished. They would go out and receive it in in faith and gratitude. But it was also their limit. God said, you're to take this much and no more. You don't hoard. You don't go overindulgent. You take this much, this daily bread, and you trust that it's enough. And we observe that some, of course, would wonder and doubt, and they would hoard it up, and it would go bad by the morning, and it wouldn't be good. But we observe that others would listen and follow God's call, and each and every day, each and every day, they would have to go watch, they would have to go see, they would have to trust that he'd proven good, but they would find that God had met their needs. And that's why Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 10, that's why the anonymous author to the Hebrews, writing in Hebrews 3 and 4 uses that episode as the great episode that illustrates faith for us. And that's what it means to lean in to the good word from God. Like those Israelites, to remember that it is meant to be for us each and every day enough. Like those Israelites, to remember that it is not enough now for you to coast on forever, for tomorrow or for next week. 
But it is daily bread and it is enough. It is sufficient for you now. And next week it will be sufficient for you in that day, in that time, for then and there. What we find is that the call to receive God's Word, like the call to receive God's pastries from on high, is a call of faith. It's a call of trust. And it's as good as the Word of the one from whom it comes. And so ultimately, being a church and being a Christian who leans on the Bible as our final authority, who listens to God's Word when we're in situations of difficulty, who refuses to listen to the voice of a stranger, and who always turns again to find instruction and wisdom and challenge and comfort from God's apostles and prophets, that is someone who is confident that God provides. That is a woman who knows that God has proven faithful. That is a man who has seen that God doesn't break His Word. That is a Christian who knows that the God who promised did in fact raise Jesus from the dead. And that having given us Him, He will also with Him give us all other good things. Food for the day and a word for the path. And so we listen. Let's pray. God, we hear so many voices in our world clamoring for our attention and some are compelling. Some seem so much wiser than us. And yet, all of them are words from sinners. From men and women like us bearing the plight of sin, death, and evil. And so we thank You for a good word from You. We thank You for a good word from heaven. We thank You for a word that is not bound to our plight and suffering our problems, but breaks into our existence with promise and hope. And so we thank You and celebrate You, Lord, as the Lord of resurrection who brings life where death has dominated. And we ask that You would instill in each of us that trust and conviction that when we're overwhelmed, we can turn to Your Word. That when we're challenged, we can listen to Your Scriptures. That when we're alone, we can hear Your comforting voice in its pages. That when we seem to be going along with the crowd, we can find confidence and boldness in the testimony of your prophets and apostles. We know that we will doubt. We know that we will fail. And we pray that you, King Jesus, would uphold us with your mighty hand and by your powerful word. For it's in your name that we do pray. Amen.